Uh, thanks for being a part of our current teaching series called Christ the King, where we are studying the gospel according to Matthew. Um, and if you're new, what we've been doing is we've just been taking it one little section at a time. We've just been working our way from beginning to end, and doing that has brought us to this today. Our text today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, as well as Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. And in these verses, as we've been advertising in the weeks leading up to today, uh, in these verses we see the king's teaching on divorce. Now, I know normally we only deal with one passage per week, uh, but long story short, there are two different teachings of Jesus and Matthew's gospel on this topic of divorce. You really can't teach one without the other, otherwise the teaching will be incomplete. Uh, so I prayerfully concluded that what I would do today is go ahead and bring both of these passages together to give you all one comprehensive teaching on the subject of divorce. Now, we have to understand this teaching on divorce uh, in its original context so that uh, we can take away from it that which Jesus desires us to take away from it. So we're going to begin with the context. Jesus is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in or near Capernaum, and he is preaching his most famous sermon, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, to the throngs of people who have gathered there. And friends, it's important to understand that Jesus is addressing very self-righteous people. They thought of themselves as good people. They did not see themselves as they really were sinners in need of a Savior. And so Jesus actually has a very specific goal in his preaching. He wants them to see their true spiritual state. He wants them to see themselves as God sees them, as sinners, as people who need the forgiveness and saving of the Savior. And so what Jesus does is he gives the people six different examples of their sinfulness. Just one example after another. By way of review, Jesus' first example, which we covered three weeks ago, uh, related to murder. And if there was anything his original audience did not think they were guilty of, it was the sin of murder. You see, they thought only the external act of murder counted in God's eyes as murder, but Jesus went ahead and explained that God's understanding and definition of murder was much broader than theirs. And so Jesus says, hey, when you have anger in your heart, when you express that anger through your words, you are just as guilty in God's eyes of murder as someone who actually committed the external act. So to people who thought they were self-righteous, Jesus looks them square in the eye and says, y'all are a bunch of murderers. But Jesus didn't stop there. In his second example of their sinfulness, which we covered last week, Jesus gave them the example of adultery. He says, you are also sinful, not just in murdering, you are sinful in committing adultery. And this too was something his audience thought they were innocent of. They thought only the external act of adultery counted as adultery in God's eyes, but Jesus, as he had done with murder, brought in their understanding of what counts in God's eyes as adultery. 
And Jesus says, when you have adulterous desires in your heart, when you have adulterous glances with your eyes, when you have adulterous thoughts in your mind, that too counts as adultery in God's eyes. And so to people who are self-righteous in their view of themselves, Jesus not only says, y'all are a bunch of murderers, he says, y'all are also a whole bunch of adulterers. And that brings us to today, where Jesus is going to share a third example of the people's sinfulness, and the third example relates to uh, divorce. You see, the people were ignoring God's ideal of permanence in marriage, They were perverting the scriptures in order to use them to justify divorce when God didn't want that for them. And then thirdly, even though there were instances where God permitted divorce in the case of a serious offense, the people were getting divorced for any and every reason, for uh, any number of trivial reasons. And so Jesus just brings to the forefront of their minds their sinfulness. They're falling short of God's ideal for them as it relates to marriage. And he does this actually for a very loving purpose. Again, just so no one misses it before we dive into the teaching. Jesus wants to point out their sin so that they'll call out to the Savior so they can receive forgiveness of sin and become citizens in the eternal kingdom that God appointed Jesus to rule over forever. So friends, that's the context. And now that you have that in your mind, let's dive in to our teaching on this topic. We begin with the nation of Israel. When the nation of Israel came up out of her slavery in Egypt, God had them make a pit stop on the way to the promised land. God said, I want you to stop at Mount Sinai where I'm going to give to you through my prophet Moses the laws that will govern your behavior as a people. And God gave them many laws, including laws related to divorce. And this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. Let me read it to you. God said this to the people through Moses. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, I realize that that was quite the run-on sentence that may have some of you scratching your uh, minds right now as to what is the scenario uh, that Moses is describing. Well, let me show it to you uh, visually, all right? Here's the scenario. Yeah, it's like Jerry Springer in a slideshow. All right. (laughs) Kim and Bob were married. But then Bob divorced Kim. Well, Kim is now single. She meets someone named Fred. Her and Fred fall in love, and Kim gets married to Fred. But then Fred has something wrong that he sees with Kim. Maybe it was the first issue that Bob saw. Who knows? But Fred also goes ahead and divorces Kim. 
Well, in this scenario, long story short, under no circumstances is Bob allowed to remarry Kim. Now, if you're taking notes, the primary purpose of this legislation can be summed up in one word, let's say it out loud together, prevention. This law made a man think twice about writing his wife a certificate of divorce and sending her away. Because if he did that in 99% of the cases, probably more, 99.99% of the cases, she would remarry. And if she did, then he could never, ever get his wife back. And this legislation just prevented many a man from ever divorcing his wife in the first place. It made him think twice. Is it whatever I'm upset about, is it really that important to me that I would risk forever losing this woman? So we see that in one word, the purpose of this legislation was, say it out loud, prevention. God didn't want the Israelites divorcing, so he gave legislation intended to prevent divorce. Now, ironically, though these verses were intended by God to prevent divorce, the Israelites started looking to them to do what? To justify divorce. Justify divorce. Instead of taking the verses for what they were, legislation intended to prevent divorce, the people started trying to interpret the meaning of something indecent in verse 1 so that they could know when they had grounds for divorce and could therefore issue a certificate of divorce. Now, as they processed the meaning of something indecent in Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, two basic schools of thought developed uh, in the nation of Israel. Now, the one camp said, you know what? This verse only allows for divorce when there is a very serious offense. But the other camp said, no way, that's too restrictive. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 allows divorce for any and every reason. And you can literally read the record of the rabbis, which I did in preparation for this sermon. And if I could summarize it for you, if a man said, she don't look good, she don't cook good, she's got bad breath, you know, I mean like he could just go ahead and divorce her if you were in this camp, in this school of thought. And so the people were just multiplying all these uh, groundless uh, divorces because they were looking to verses that God intended to prevent divorce and they were looking to them in order to justify divorce. But the bottom line is this. There were two primary camps that developed based on the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. Well, by the time of Jesus, hundreds and hundreds of years later, Jesus comes along and by this time, these two camps were given names. And they, each camp was named after uh, one of the leading rabbis of the early first century. Those who held to the view that a man could divorce his wife only for a serious offense were said to belong to the school of Shammai. Those who held that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason were said to belong to the school of Hillel. So naturally, when Jesus began his public ministry, I mean, this was the hot topic uh, subject of his day. 
And so when Jesus began his public ministry, everyone, of course, naturally wanted to know, Jesus, where do you stand on this issue? Do you belong to the school of Hillel, which says a man can divorce his wife for any and every reason? Or do you belong to the stricter camp of Shammai, who says a man can only divorce his wife for a very serious offense? Jesus, where do you stand on this issue? How do you interpret Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1? But to those looking... To find justification for divorce from Deuteronomy 24, to justify their groundless divorces, Jesus goes ahead and gives a teaching from Genesis chapters 1 to 2 that shows that God's ideal is permanence in marriage. Take a look. Jesus says to them, haven't you guys read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer uh, two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, friends, don't miss this. What they want to know is, when am I justified in getting a divorce? But what Jesus wants them to know is that God's ideal is permanence in marriage. Well, now the Pharisees are just plain confused. So they ask Jesus, if God's ideal is permanence in marriage, then why did Moses command, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, they were asking, if Genesis teaches that God's ideal is permanence in marriage, then why does Moses contradict God by commanding divorce in the book of Deuteronomy? Jesus, if what you're saying is true, doesn't the teaching of Moses in Deuteronomy contradict the teaching given in the book of Genesis? And so here's how Jesus replied to clear up their confusion. Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. Jesus says, Moses permitted you, didn't command you, he permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. So Jesus says, it was because of the sinful hardness of your hearts that God permitted you to divorce because he knew that you would often fail to live up to his ideals. Not just his ideals concerning marriage, but, but his ideals just in general. But knowing that you would fail to live up his ideals, including God's ideal of permanence in marriage, God permitted divorce in certain instances. But it wasn't because that's what he wanted. He permitted it because he knew the sinful hardness of your hearts that would result in divorce. But this in no way commands divorce. As you're saying, God simply permitted a way to deal with divorce when due to the sinful hardness of your hearts, you fail to live up to his ideals. So to those looking to justify divorce, Jesus went ahead and shined a heavenly spotlight on God's ideal of permanence in marriage. But now they had another question. Well, are there any exceptions at all? I mean, here we've had our two uh, schools of thought, our two different camps for all these, you know, hundreds of years. And now you're saying, but God's ideal is permanence in marriage. So Jesus, are you saying that divorces, you know, can just absolutely never take place? I mean, are there any exceptions to where you can get a divorce without committing a sin that is tantamount or on par with adultery? Well, friends, this is what Jesus speaks to next 
in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Jesus says to them, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now we have to remember the question at hand. The question at hand is, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason or only for a serious offense? And in answering the way that he did, Jesus is saying, only for a serious offense. And in mentioning sexual immorality, Jesus is giving an example of a serious offense. According to Jesus, a divorce based on something trivial is a groundless divorce and a sinful divorce. But there are exceptions for a serious offense. And when I say exceptions, I'm saying plural. And I bring that up because some argue that the only biblical grounds for divorce is adultery. But friends, that's simply not the case. Now, please don't misunderstand my motives here in sharing this with you. I'm not sharing this so that I can just expand the options that you have for divorce. God doesn't want divorce. But I share it with you because you need to understand what the Bible teaches and doesn't teach. The English phrase... Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word pornea and is a general name for any number of sexual sins, including but not limited to adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, uh, incest, prostitution, and the list goes on. For a full list, see Leviticus chapter 18. Sexual immorality, it's like the word meat and that it can refer to any number of things. So I like to put meat on my smoker. And if I said to Kristen, what do you want for dinner? And she said, meat. I would have to go ahead and clarify. Well, what do you mean? You want me to put some salmon on the smoker? You want me to put some beef on the smoker? You want me to put some, uh, you know, pork on the smoker? Like, like, you want me to put some poultry on the smoker? What kind of meat are you referring to? Well, in the same way that meat is a general term, so is sexual immorality. In the New Testament, there's a word for divorce. That's not the word Jesus used. Jesus used the word for sexual immorality, which is like an umbrella term that covers any and all uh, sexual sin as defined by the Mosaic law. So no, adultery isn't the only biblical ground for divorce. This becomes even more clear when we look at the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gives another grounds for divorce, commonly referred to as desertion grounds. And here's the rules. If an unbeliever is married to a believer and wants to go ahead and leave that believer and goes ahead and deserts that believer, Paul says, well, in this instance, uh, divorce is biblically permissible. And of course, anytime divorce is biblically permissible, so is remarriage. But I want you to see this for yourself. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 15. Paul says this, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister, meaning the Christian in the relationship, is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Friends, what I'm trying to point out to you is this. In these verses, the Apostle Paul has given biblical grounds for divorce that Jesus never mentioned. And in giving another ground for divorce, Paul has done one of two things. 
He has either defied the teaching of Jesus or he has applied the teaching of Jesus. If Jesus was giving in Matthew 5 and 19 a comprehensive list of reasons for which one could get a divorce, then Paul has defied Jesus. But on the other hand, if you understand Jesus to have taught that one can divorce for a serious offense, then Paul has applied Jesus' teaching. Because desertion, much like sexual immorality, is a serious offense, not a trivial one. This, of course, brings up another question. What counts as serious? Now, I'm going to go ahead and answer the question, but a quick word of caution before I do. God's ideal is permanence in marriage. And we have to be very careful never to go looking for justification for something that God does not want, ideally, to see in our life. And we have to be careful that we don't become like the Israelites in looking to justify divorce. So we have to be careful as we go ahead and answer the question, what counts as serious? But again, not to multiply divorces, but so you understand the biblical teaching, I am going to go ahead and answer the question. To answer this question, what counts as serious, we first need to understand the foundation of marriage. In other words, we need to understand the requisite parts that together comprise biblical marriage. Because it's only understand what we it's only when we understand what makes a marriage that we can properly understand what breaks a marriage. So let's understand what comprises marriage. And the answer to this question is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus has already quoted it in Matthew chapter 19, but here we're going to go directly to the source. God said this in, these verse, in this verse, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. From this verse we learn that marriage is comprised of three commitments. Number one, a commitment to prioritize your spouse above all other relationships. Friends, when it talks about leaving, the husband and wife leave their mother and father. But that doesn't mean they never talk to him again. It means that they now prioritize each other over and above any other human relationship. That's what we're getting at when it speaks of leaving. Speaking of a commitment to prioritize your spouse above all other human relationships. The second commitment of marriage is a commitment to stick together through thick and thin. This commitment is brought out in the word cleave. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. To cleave means to be glued together firmly. So when you got married... You likely stated vows that said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. What are you committing to? You're committing to sticking together through thick and thin. And that's proper because that is the second commitment that makes up a marriage. All right, the third commitment of marriage is a commitment to sexual fidelity. That's what it means when it talks about becoming one flesh. It's speaking to the sexual union that consummates a marriage that is to be enjoyed exclusively between husband and wife. 
So friends, these are the three commitments of marriage. When we get married, we commit to prioritize our spouse above any other human relationship. When we get married, we commit to stick together through thick and thin. And when we get married, we commit to sexual fidelity with our spouse. Okay, now that you understand that, let's get back to our question. What counts as a serious offense that prevents grounds for divorce and remarriage versus a trivial one that does not? In short, a serious offense occurs when one or more of the three commitments of marriage are broken. With this understanding, it becomes very clear why some divorces are sinful while others are permitted. I'll give you several examples. I remember a number of years back, I was counseling a woman in our church, and uh, her husband had just uh, cut her and the kids off financially. She was a stay-at-home mom. She made her job caring for the children, so she didn't have an income-producing job. She's had the job of caring for the children, and she was forced to go ahead and beg from family and friends in order to provide for these kids. Friends, God never wants divorce, but in an instance like this where a man will not live up to his biblical responsibility to provide for his family, a divorce may be needed so that the courts can force the man to fulfill his obligation when he won't do it voluntarily. God doesn't want it, but it's allowed. He's not prioritizing his wife and the family that's been created from the marriage above any and all other human forms. You know what the guy was doing with his money? He was spending it all on his new mistress. When there's neglect like this, when there's abuse, I mean, is physical abuse, someone in the, in the relationships getting beaten and all this, is that prioritizing your spouse above all other human relationships? You go to work and you show respect to your boss, you come home and there's spousal abuse. Friends, this is a violation of the first commitment of marriage, to prioritize your spouse above any and all other human relationships. I'll give you another example. The second commitment of marriage is to stick together through thick and thin. But hey, if one spouse deserts the other, divorce and remarriage is permissible. It's not what God wants, but it's permitted because deserting your spouse, that's not trivial, that's serious. I remember counseling a young man in our church, and I literally walked him through uh, what was going on in his marriage, and, and he was desperate to do anything and everything that he could to hold the marriage together. And long story short, the wife was literally just deserting him and deserting the thing. She wanted a job in corporate America and wanted to make tons of money, just decided I changed my mind, I don't want anything to do with a husband, domestic life, having kids, all this kind of stuff. And he, and he begged and he pleaded. I, I was a part of it every step of the way. And she just absolutely deserted him. Friends, God doesn't want divorce. But when there's desertion, is divorce permissible? The answer is yes. Why? Because desertion breaks the second commitment of marriage, which is to stick together through thick and thin. Give you one final example. The third commitment of marriage is to share sexual intimacy only with your spouse. And Jesus says, when sexual immorality occurs, it is the violation of the third commitment of marriage. Whether you sin sexually through adultery, 
through prostitution, through homosexuality, through incest, through any other kind of sexual sin. It is the violation, could be a, a massive uh, pornography addiction, uh, when you violate your commitment to sexual fidelity with your spouse. God doesn't want divorce. And you should try to seek every other way around it that's possible. But should you fail in your attempts, is divorce permitted? The answer is yes. Why? Because it's the breaking of a, the third commitment of marriage. It's a, it's a serious offense. It's not a trivial one. Do you understand? When you understand what makes a marriage, you can understand now what breaks a marriage. Now, I realize that I've covered a lot, as I do every week. And so you guys know me. I like to do summaries to bring it all together for you. So take a look. Here's the summary of today's teaching. God hates divorce because of all the pain. I just want to point this out. He doesn't hate people who are divorced. Big difference. God hates divorce because of all the pain that it brings into the lives of those who are touched by divorce. God hates divorce. And he desires permanence in marriage. That is his ideal. So we always need to do all we can to avoid it, not justify it. All we can to avoid it, not justify it. But with that said, there are biblical exceptions to the rule where someone could be divorced and remarried without committing a sin on par with or tantamount to adultery. So friends, that's the comprehensive teaching on this subject of divorce. And we now need to end exactly where we began by bringing it back into the context of Jesus preaching to self-righteous people on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus wanted his audience to be saved, but he knew that their self-righteousness was standing in the way. He didn't desire to beat the people up and give them a huge guilt trip. Jesus loved them. He loved them so much that later he would die an excruciatingly painful death on the cross for them. So, so he loved these people. And though he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, rather to save the world, he knew that they could never be saved until they first understood that they did stand condemned before a holy God because of their sin. For the wages of sin is death. When we sin, we deserve to die. We die physically, and one day, apart from Christ, we will suffer eternally for our sins. And that is the truth Jesus wanted to highlight and bring to his audience's attention. So in love and, and with great concern for their soul, he says, you think you're righteous. You think you're good with God, but let me tell you, you're not because your sin has separated you from him. Jesus said, you've got anger in your heart. God counts that as murder. He says, you have lust in your heart. God counts that as adultery. And to add to those sins, many of you have gotten groundless divorces. You've been divorced for some trivial reason. You're going around saying, my wife doesn't look good and cook good. And, and, I, and I love you, God, but I'm divorcing for trivial reasons. And Jesus is just, he's pointing out their sinfulness. He wants them to see their true spiritual state before God. So that they'll see their need for the salvation that only he can provide. 
Now the question begs, what does all this have to do with me, Mike? Well, I'm glad you asked. I think many of us are equally deceived into thinking that we are good with God when we're not. They were deceived. We are deceived today. Friends, our natural state is not good with God. The Bible teaches that apart from uh, Christ, we are objects of God's wrath. We live only to one day have God pour out his wrath against our sin. So we're not good with God. We're objects of his wrath, awaiting eternal judgment. So apart from Christ, no, we're not, we're not good with God. Many of us are deceived into thinking we're good with God because like the audience that Jesus was originally preaching to, we too suffer from self-righteousness. Here, here's what we do. We look to someone who is morally inferior to us and say to ourselves, compared to them, I'm a good person. Yeah, it's easy to come out looking good when you uh, compare yourself to a serial rapist. Yeah, you, you end up looking really great. But friends, the problem with that is this. On Judgment Day, God's not going to allow you to compare yourself to someone who is morally worse than you. On Judgment Day, God's going to say, here's you and here's me. Let's see how you measure up. And compared to God, we're going to fall woefully short. My concern for you today is the same concern that Jesus had for those he originally preached this sermon to. My concern is that you won't see your sinfulness, that you won't see your need for a Savior. And in not seeing your need for a Savior, you'll never call out to him for forgiveness of sins. And if your sins aren't forgiven, you won't become a recipient of eternal life and you won't become a citizen in the eternal kingdom of Christ forever. That's my concern for you because that was Jesus' concern for those he originally preached to. Friends, I beg you today to see your true spiritual state before God. Friends, have you had anger in your heart? Have you expressed that anger with unkind words? God says, hey, by the way I measure it, that makes you guilty of murder. Friends, have you had adulterous desires in your heart? Have you had adulterous glances with your eyes? Have you had adulterous thoughts in your mind? God says, hey, by the way, I reckon adultery, you're guilty of adultery. And friend, as it relates to the topic we've discussed today, have you had a groundless divorce? If you have, it doesn't make you a horrible person. If you have, it doesn't mean you're not welcome here at New Day. If you have, it doesn't mean the rest of your life is ruined because you've, uh, you know, uh, irreparably messed it up. No, it's not what it means, but it does mean that you're guilty before God. And hey, I got news for you. So am I, so is every other person. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means we all fall short of his glorious standard. When we compare ourselves to him in the perfect holiness that he demands of us, we all fall short. And friends, whether you sin just one sin or 10,000, to break one part of God's law is to break all of it. And the wages of sin is death. That is the one penalty for sin. And because God loves us so much, he sent Jesus to give us a message that confronts our sin so we'll see our true spiritual state. So we'll call out to Jesus for forgiveness so that we can be saved. Maybe you heard in the weeks leading up to today that we were going to preach a message on divorce and you thought it was going to be doom and gloom and just this judgmental, like, can't believe you did this, God hates you and all that. 
And what you see today is that, oh my goodness, nothing could be further from the truth. It's a message of hope. When we recognize our sin and call out to the Savior, we become recipients of eternal life. Thank God. Thank God. Friends, my hope today is that you'll be willing to admit what God already knows. You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. But we serve a good God who sent Jesus to save us from our sins. We are sinners in need of a Savior. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And if today you're willing to confess that before God, then I want to invite you to join us in our closing prayer so you can receive forgiveness of sins and so that you can step into the glorious future that God has for every single one of you, regardless of whatever sins we may have committed. There's forgiveness. In fact, let me show you this one verse before we pray. I love what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. John says, if we say we have no sin, no, 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 I'm not guilty of trivial divorce. No, 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 I'm not guilty of murder of the heart. No, 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 I'm not guilty of adultery, whether with the body or in the mind. No, no, no. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Because the truth of God's word says we are sinners in need of a savior. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So friends, do you see Jesus points out our sin so that we can call out to him for forgiveness, so that he can cleanse us of our sin, so that we can have right standing with God the Father and escape his wrath. So my appeal today is this. If you recognize your true spiritual state, you're a sinner in need of a savior. And if you're ready to call out to Jesus to save you from the penalty that God's law demands for sin, which is death, won't you join us in prayer? Wherever you are online or here in person, would you bow your head? Let's go to God. Not out loud, but in your heart, would you say something like this to God? Just say, Heavenly Father, uh, today I want to get right with you. God, I've thought of myself as a good person, but I realized I've been using the wrong standard. God, compared to you, no, no, I don't measure up good. I measure up short. God, that's the bad news, but I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I thank you for the good news that you sent Jesus to come be my Savior. And thank you, God, that no matter what sin I'm guilty of, whether it's murder or adultery or a groundless divorce, God, I thank you that through Jesus there is forgiveness and cleansing of sin. God, thank you that I don't have to be defined by some sinful mistake I've made in my past. Thank you, God, that with you there's cleansing, there's forgiveness, and there's a bright future made possible through Jesus your son, the savior of the world. God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. God, I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve cleansing. I don't deserve a bright future. God, I've fallen short of your ideals in many areas of my life. I don't deserve nothing but judgment. But I thank you for the gift of eternal life made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. 
I believe on Jesus today as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior that you promised to send into the world. And today I'm appointing him king over my life to rule and to reign. God, moving forward, help me to live up to your ideals. Like the Apostle Paul, I forget what's behind and I press on though towards that high calling that you have for us in Christ. God, and I thank you that you'll be with me every step of the way, empowering me by your Holy Spirit, forgiving me and pouring out grace and mercy where I fall short. Because God, that's the kind of God you are. God, I give you praise. And I pray all this through the precious name of your son, Jesus, my Savior. Amen. 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 Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you and we hope to see you again soon.